Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders from throughout the sports event industry. This is Matt Traub, Managing Editor of Sports Travel, and our guest today is Max Siegel, the Chief Executive Officer for USA Track and Field. But before we begin, first a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 22 will be held in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma from October 24th through the 27th, 2022. This year's conference will again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic SportsLink program and NGB Best Practices Seminar, as well as the annual symposium at the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything we have planned at Teams this year, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the conversation. Max Siegel has been the CEO of USA Track and Field since May 2012, making him one of the longest tenured CEOs in the U.S. Olympic movement. During that time, USA Track and Field has remained one of the best performing NGBs in the Summer Olympic movement and also made huge strides, pardon the pun, in the sponsorship landscape. Coming off the 2022 World Athletics Championships in Eugene, Oregon, the first time the event has ever been held in the United States, Siegel sat down to discuss how the World Championships went, plans to grow the sport of track and field dramatically leading up to LA 28, sponsorship and branding both on the NGB and individual athlete levels, and so much more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Max Siegel, thank you for joining us today on the Sports Travel Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. The biggest event in the world for track and field, the World Athletics Championships, was held recently in Eugene, Oregon, the first time that event has been on U.S. soil. On the track, the U.S. far outpaced any country in the medals race, but there was some outside concern about attendance and TV ratings. How would you grade the event, and is there anything that you wish could have been done differently in retrospect? So the post-event analysis shows that these were the best TV ratings ever. And so going into the event, I'm, I know that there was concern about everything from the size of the market, the facilities, uh, and whatnot. But I've, I have been to a number of world championships, and I'm uh, really proud to say that I think that everyone had a tremendous experience there. The athlete, athletic performance was great, but for me, just having Eugene, Oregon embrace the event, and, and it really felt as though you were in a world championship village. In retrospect, I think that uh, it was really great. You know, we had a different, um, the sessions were full, the fans were very knowledgeable and appreciated all of the athletic performances, and I think that people got to experience a different uh, cultural phenomenon where the fans walked around the stadium. So there are various opportunities to view warm-ups, to view all of those kind of things. And I think that from a fan experience and an athlete experience, it was uh, superb. World Athletics has been very open about wanting to grow the sport's prominence in the coming years leading up to LA 28 here in the United States. Knowing that desire, what can USA Track and Field do to leverage that desire? and bringing more high-profile events potentially in the future to this country? Yeah, so first of all, we're working in close collaboration with World Athletics. Uh, we've jointly engaged uh, research partners uh, to give us some quantitative data as to where the sport sits. Uh, and then we've also engaged uh, some outside organizations to collaborate with, to come up with you know, campaigns and strategies from an awareness standpoint. As a federation, we'll be launching a domestic circuit that will be televised. It'll be a global circuit uh, here on in this region, so the entire NACAC region can participate. Uh, we have tremendous and robust 
grassroots programs where we can get our pipeline and our young athletes engaged in a very meaningful way. And our philosophy at USA Track and Field is to create a lifelong connection to the sport. So whether you become, you know, an elite athlete on the highest stage or a fan that's very engaged, you can do so. Uh, we are also working really diligently with our 57 associations throughout the country to make sure that we're connecting with those that are not only active in the competition side of the sport, but those who participate in road racing and uh, casual runners. So for me, you know, the sport is incredibly healthy in the United States as the highest participatory middle school and high school sport. And you have a ton of people who actually run. So in addition to the high profile events, we're trying to connect all the dots and to get people more engaged in a really deliberate manner. You mentioned the idea for a series of events throughout the country in major cities as part of the lead up to LA 28. What more can you tell us about the plans, both in the number of cities you would want to visit and the timeline in getting those events scheduled? Philosophically, we have three different buckets that we're going after. One is the elite professional competition, which will be in four markets next year, and we will be rolling those out and announcing those uh, in the in the next couple of months. And then that will expand to five markets beyond that, which will be, again, a very high-profile professional circuit, televised, broadcast, distributed on a number of platforms. Those events are going to be fully integrated with community engagement, fan activation. There'll be some youth participation, and we'll try to integrate showcasing our master's athletes as both a way to give great competition and to engage our community. The other bucket will be more of a promotional series similar to the street games, where we will celebrate the achievements and bring the community up close and personal in an entertaining way with our elite athletes who have performed at an international competition. And then the other championships that our federation owns are feeders to like it's uh, indoor and outdoor and regional competitions that lead to junior Olympics. All of these things will be integrated. Um, they will be rolled out in terms of what the markets are in the next two months. And we're looking forward to launching those in the next in the upcoming year. What is the message to cities about opportunities in the sport to spotlight track and field? And you mentioned how you're trying to bring everything together. The U.S. is a very big country, as you know, and trying to recruit elite athletes to your organization. How do you utilize and work with not just the big cities, but the small and medium sized cities in terms of being able to bring events and make sure that they know that they can have USA track and field events in town as well? Yeah, two, two cities in particular can use it as examples. We work really closely with the Urban League of the of Louisville, Kentucky to design and they constructed an, a facility that has an indoor track and an outdoor track. And they raised over $50 million. The facility is up and running. And then what we did was work closely with them so they can host a number of youth events, master's events, and high caliber events. We're also integrating our run, jump, throw program, our community-based program to get young people excited about being introduced to the sport and healthy lifestyles, which either accompany those competitions or run independently. The city of Indianapolis, we're engaged in discussions with them. They also are constructing an indoor facility on the state fairgrounds. So we're looking to do that as we have like with Albuquerque, New Mexico. We were fortunate enough to bring on the village of Elk Grove, Illinois, as a partner of ours. And they were pretty innovative in showcasing the similarities between our elite athlete preparation and what they do to prepare world-class uh, businesses. So both on the commercial side 
and on the grassroots side, we're working really diligently uh, with the cities. What we have been able to do is we've been able to explain to a lot of the municipalities, even at the grassroots level, that there's a tremendous economic impact of hosting, say, a junior Olympics in a community where you have thousands of athletes and their families who are enjoying the community. So whether it's hotels or restaurants and those kind of things, it really gets cities excited about the prospect of hosting USA Track and Field events. You mentioned Louisville and the indoor facility that they have. You mentioned Indianapolis working toward another uh, indoor facility. And there's also another new indoor venue, venue that has been online recently in Spokane, Washington, which I know you guys have had the indoor nationals at. Outdoor events have been so high profile for decades because of its Olympic ties. But what do you do to use the new indoor venues and just indoor track and field in terms of resonating for the, throughout the country? Yeah, we were having an internal discussion uh, just yesterday, frankly, about the importance of having professionals who promote, right? So the, the athletic integrity of the event, we have tons of uh, subject matter experts and we have tremendous athletes but to your point, uh, we really want to partner with communities and professionals that promote these type of events. They're accessible. They're very family friendly. They're affordable. They're really entertaining. And so we have to reimagine how we go about promoting those events in the city. Spokane was a wonderful experience for us. It, you know, it is an example of how a community comes together and brings an event like that. And again, so we're thinking very thoroughly about the athletic competition and how to integrate that into you know a community engagement experience as well. Allison Felix, one of the most recognizable stars in U.S. track history, retired, received lots of attention at the World Athletics in Eugene. Already very prominent on the track scene, Sydney McLaughlin this, this summer has continued her rise to mainstream prominence as a crossover star. How can her accomplishments to this point be marketed to an even larger audience in the coming years? And what do you see as USA Track and Field's role in helping her and other athletes get broader mainstream prominence? It's uh, it's actually pretty exciting and interesting. They're training partners with the same coach. And I think that, you know, it is always uh, wonderful to see some of our elder statesmen and women pass that knowledge down to some of our younger athletes. I think the thing that's most uh, impressive about the athletes in USA Track and Field is uh, we have very high-performing athletes athletically, and they're very diverse in their background and their interest. So we have a lot of opportunities for to inspire younger people to compete, but also to connect emotionally with fans, the tremendous stories that we have to tell. And so for us, you know, whether they're ambassadors for the Federation, whether they're ambassadors for the sport, we're working really hard to tell the athlete stories and to work closely with their team to help them build their brand. So it's, it, it, and it runs a gamut it's from what people do in their off time and, you know, what inspires them to compete to, you know, how we work alongside their brands to elevate their profile around, you know, significant international competitions. So we have a, a, a number of things that we're doing to elevate the individual brands and to make the connection to the people that participate and reposition the federation and the sport. Obviously, you have had a long history of having prominent female athletes like such as Allison and Sydney. How do you feel USA Track and Field 
as an NGB, but also just in terms of its high performance athletes is well is equipped and, and situated to be able to uh, take advantage of all of the recent really commercial interest in both women's side of things and just from an overall DEI point of view. So, you know, we have embarked upon a very intentional um, diversity initiative cu- culturally as an organization. And you, that's reflected in our professional staff and in our athletes and in our coaches. And I think that we have been able to achieve both commercial success as well as athletic success by recognizing and celebrating that diversity of thought and life experience. What's really interesting is that, you know, we've partnered with a number of organizations, Parity being one of them, that is co-founded by a former board member that is solely focused on making sure that female athletes share in, you know, the revenue that's spent, you know, from a sponsorship side. You know, we have a number of initiatives uh, that we're involved in in terms of heightening the profile of our volunteers, our executives, our athletes. And we've been pretty female heavy on the performance side. And this past year, you see our male sprinters are now coming back into the fold. And, you know, we're sweeping in the shot put, you know. And so so to your point, I think we're all excited about very diverse group of athletes that we have and the tremendous opportunities that they present to us to, to, to promote them and the sport. Given the high profile of LA 28 and the Olympic Summer Games not having been in the U.S. for decades, how much, if at all, do you almost have to refocus as an NGB on making sure that you perform well at Paris 2024? And because that is going to have to be, I would imagine, a very large part of the success plan in terms of being able to lead for LA 28 being in terms of commercially and on on field. Yeah, it's really exciting that we all focus on LA 2028, but our high performance department reminds me every day that we have Paris 2024 uh, that we need to be prepared for. And and to your point, you know, the plans are well underway. We'll continue to support our athletes in that regard. What we have really recognized is that the LA 2028 bookend gives us something domestically that people can work towards and concentrate on. And so all of our promotion, our strategic plan, everything that we're rolling out has in mind that we want to elevate our athletes and the status of the sport. So by LA 2028, you know, we're a top five sport. So as an organizing principle, it's really great. And it gives us a good glide path. Our high performance staff, I would say they're second to none in the world. And they've been hard at work on a daily basis, both supporting our athletes now, finding the next, you know, a great athlete in our pipeline. And so we're laser focused on that, but we're all excited to have the games here in the States in 2028 out in Los Angeles. USA Track and Field is one of the most high profile NGB organizations in the U.S. Olympic movement. You've been CEO of Track and Field since May 2012, not to date you or anything, but that's a that's a pretty long time in the NGB world. What has kept you around and what is the biggest challenge right now in running an NGB? Yeah, so so it's been a decade that sometimes feels like 70 years, dog years, seven uh, but the reality of the situation is I think that the passion that I have and have had with the Olympic sports and the platform is the ability that the sport continues to have to not only be entertaining, but have a global cultural impact. I have had the privilege during the world championships to just sit with and we had a press conference and honor, you know, uh, Dr. John Carlos and Dr. Tommy Smith to see living legends and cultural icons that have impacted history, it really reminds you why you get up and go to work every day. 
I also have a couple of, uh, of my two of my three children have come up through youth sports and division one college athletes. And I see the importance of the inspiration that our athletes have and what sports can do to help form a young person in, you know, with leadership skills and team building skills and all those kind of things. The other thing that I find completely fascinating is as we travel globally with USA Track and Field, the impact that our staff, whether it's the medical staff, the athletes, or the executives or our coaches have globally, it's just, you know, it's, it's amazing. And so those things are really exciting. I think the thing that challenges in GBs uh, is the cluttered sports marketplace. We've had success commercially, but, you know, 70% of USA Track and Field's revenue, I have to raise in the form of corporate partnerships. And so, you know, we don't have philanthropy, we don't get government support. So it is constantly trying to discover, prove, reinvent yourself and present value to your commercial partners. You know, as the landscape gets more crowded, that gets more and more challenging, but it's also exciting to be able to tackle those challenges. You've been able to have a, a strong revenue base with your long-term deal with Nike that you've uh, had for years now and will continue for years. What? How much does having that long-term deal do in terms of helping you from a revenue standpoint and knowing you have that guarantee to build on rather than having to try and find a new supplier every two to three years? Yeah. So for me, um, it's. It, I'm glad you asked that question. I came from NASCAR. And so I was in the industry around 2008 and nine when the economy really took a dive. And I got to see how um, short-term deals were terminated, how people rethought about how they assessed the value, people invested, you know, brands invested differently. And so for me, having gotten to know all of the leaders from the founder of Nike on down to the leadership, it was clear to me that it was not only a brand investment, but there was an emotional connection to the sport. And there were there were people at Nike and the leadership who wanted to ensure that this sport was thriving for years to come. So from a financial stability side, after I did all the economic analysis about what, what the deal should look like, you know, having that as an anchor partner really gave us a lot of financial stability. It's one category. So we've been able to bring on 19 other partners in various sizes to kind of diversify our revenue stream. But that long-term deal sent a ton of signals to the market that we had financial stability, that we had a premium brand that was interested in us. And so it has allowed us uh, the opportunity to attract other partners. You mentioned the challenges that NGBs in this world currently face, especially, you know, they always have, but especially now in terms of expanding revenue with, of course, there's also increasing costs around, especially for any NGB that work, that competes, which all of you do worldwide. I know the USA OPC said this summer that one of its top priorities is expanding revenue. How would you describe how the USOPC and NGP communities can work together to achieve that goal on both sides of the relationship, which at times has had some tension to it? I think it is important that the organizations do work collaboratively. I am a firm believer that together we can achieve more than we can individually. It's interesting because the NGBs are diverse. So their offerings in terms of their assets for the commercial partner and their structures are different. So one size doesn't fit all. However, we have embarked upon a partnership with USA Swimming where we're looking at specific categories and we're aggregating our assets and we're going after commercial partners in that way. 
So a collaborative way of thinking to look at how each NGB brings different things to the table. And the reality of the situation is while we get tremendous support from the USOPC and the focus is a lot in the high performance area, the NGBs on a day-to-day basis are the ones executing the programs and really, you know, developing the pipeline. And so we actually have access to and we own different rights than the USOPC. So when you put those together, theoretically, uh, you have a more valuable offering than if you had them individually. So we, we need to continue to work, find ways to work together to interest commercial partners and deliver on that value proposition. You mentioned the partnership that you have with USA Swimming. How much in terms of working with other NGBs and coming up with types of ways that you can diversify your revenue stream and work together, how much of that is just naturally occurring and how much of it in some ways is a result of the last couple of years dealing with a pandemic where you you have to really work for those business opportunities and present a long-term value more than ever before? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. I think some of it happens organically. Before we went to Rio, we partnered with gymnastics and swimming, and we called ourselves the Trio to Rio. So we were thinking about how to collaborate and reach, you know, a wider audience. I think things like, you know, when you look at social media, where, you know, we're first of all, content production, where you're trying to aggregate content, or you're looking at social media platforms and how do you amplify messages? And then, you know, you had to get innovative with COVID. I think a lot of that kind of sparked conversation saying, hey, you know, how do we work together? You know, we're also facing more expenses as it relates to good governance and professional oversight. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure on our organizations to become financially sustainable and support these things. So a lot of things have forced conversations that were happening somewhat organically, but you know they're happening in a really focused and deliberate manner right now. A lot of the traditional elite athlete development also takes place in the collegiate scene, which has undergone gone dramatic changes, especially with NIL in the last year. How does NIL help or hurt USA track and field in terms of having elite athletes develop? We're still trying to sort out what the impact is going to be on the organization. I happen to, I have two things that are pretty good for us. One is I work on what is called the Collegiate Sustainability Task Force with the USOPC and a number of athletic directors across the country and other federation executives. So we're constantly taking a look at, you know, that development pipeline, uh, how we sustain that, you know, those sports in the collegiate system and how these new initiatives are impacting that. So that's kind of a fluid thing that goes on. And I'm in the partnership work stream I'm leading. So so on a daily basis, uh, you know, I also have two. Well, my oldest son who played football in Notre Dame was a lineman and he led the NIL discussion on Notre Dame's campus. You know, you could see the impact on the the linemen and then the more high profile uh, um, athletes. And my daughter's a volleyball player. So there's a lot of NIL discussion. So I think it's early. Um, I'm encouraged to see that people are trying to tackle it and, and be leaders. But I think it it ultimately will be a plus for us as we figure out ways that whether it's a collegiate athlete that needs to get prize money, you know, to cover expenses. I mean, there are ways that we may be able to enhance the support of collegiate athletes as the NIL rules start to roll out. Where do you see the Olympic movement in the U.S. right now? 
they're obviously the last two, the summer and the, the rescheduled summer games, the winter games in Beijing. TV ratings was a huge focal point from outside observers. But you do also have LA 28. And not to belabor the point or overlook Paris 2024 on the summer landscape, but how important is it for the U.S. Olympic landscape that you do have an American Games to look forward to? Well, let me start by saying that the, the, the games in LA 2028 are certainly the catalyst that we need to refocus on the movement. One of the things for me that is interesting uh, and a bit frustrating when you analyze the movement from a fan engagement standpoint is I have seen the evolution of how consumers actually consume content, right? And so is it a fair discussion to say, there were set, there was a sold out Madison Square Arena event for a track meet, but there were no one watching it on handhelds. Or is it being consumed more if you have a million people looking at it on your phone and half the arena is full? And so I think that as we continue to talk about what is called either total audience delivery or really getting a language where we can get a handle on how many people are engaged in the sport in various ways then we'll have a better sense for, is it declining? Is it up or down? Because if you read and you see the TV ratings are diving, the first thing people do is panic and they're alarmed by it. I'd like to see a common language or a common metric where we can kind of bring all this together and get a real assessment. As far as the games being in the States, I think it's critical. And I think I'm already seeing uh, the opportunity for domestic sponsors and the conversations more focused on Olympic sports because the games are actually here and you don't necessarily forget about them in between the two or four year cycle. Along with USA Track and Field, you also have extensive involvement with NASCAR and Rev Racing. How involved on a day to day basis are you with that? And how much of a balancing act is it just being, you know, casually involved even, let alone detailed involved? Yeah, so so I, I am the owner. I don't run the race team, and I've owned it for 14 years. It's a family-owned business. You know, my wife uh, is very active in running the race team as well as my son. But my management team for Rev Racing has been in place. I think you know my my top managers since inception of it 14 years, and my senior management managers for a decade. So as as I would with any other investment, you know, in terms of philosophically and making sure the culture is great and you know, having board meetings is great. It's uh, for me, my life's passion has been creating opportunities for people in non-traditional fields. And, you know, if it weren't for sports or someone investing in me, my parents didn't go to college. We didn't have a lot of resources. Uh, so I was blessed for people to create opportunities for me and to make me see that I could achieve more than my four, you know, my, my, my four block radius that I grew up in. And so I will continue as long as I have breath in my body to try to make sure that young people are given opportunities to exceed and excel and especially historically disadvantaged individuals. And so it is wonderful. My oldest son, who is in law school at Georgetown and an athlete, uh, does a lot with our athlete, you know, the driver development and touching base. And my daughter does tons in the social media space. So it's great to see the family do it. And we have a great team of people that run that. Favorite track and field event when you're at a competition to watch is? Oh, my gosh. You know what? It has changed. You know, the sprints are always exciting. The relays get you really nervous about getting to stick around. But I have to tell you, watching pole vault, watching the throws over the last few years has been amazing from, from two vantage points. 
One is, you know, when you have an athlete like Ryan Krauser who's out there setting records and and you want to see how he performs, it's one thing. When you get when you get the sweep and you see that, you know, years ago in different disciplines, we didn't have this kind of performance. And you can see the investment that the coaches and the high performance team has made and how that's developed athletes and to watch athletes that you know personally go through this journey and then on the big stage pop. It's so exciting. So for me, you know, I, I find myself gravitating toward the story and I love great competition. So, you know, sprints are exciting, but watching the pole vault, watching the long jump, watching the throws has been really cool for me. One more for you, Max. What's the one place a fan has to attend a track and field meet at to become a convert to the sport? I I think there are two places, actually. One is anyone who has a pin relays experience where you go and see how electrifying that that environment is in a festival. And even domestically, like you see culturally, you see the Jamaicans really, you know, the country pride here in a university setting with the festival going on, it's just like, wow, this is like really cool uh, beyond the stadium. And then the other one has to be the new Hayward Field. You know, you go out to Hayward Field and you feel like uh, you're in a video game. Anything that you can think of in terms of really treating track and field at a first class level, it's there. And then you you layer on amazing athlete performances and then you have a crowd who is just as knowledgeable and they cheer for everyone, I think you really walk away from there with a new appreciation for the sport. Well, from a a busy summer and years ahead, Max, we appreciate you taking the time out to join us today on the Sports Travel Podcast. Thank you for having me and I appreciate it. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at sportstravel on Twitter and Instagram, and at sportstravelmagazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Matt Trial for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.